Well, with the holidays past, we come back to our series in the book of Acts today. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the first three years of Paul's Christian life. And you think, oh, no, you know, this is going to be boring. It's like, no, believe me, this is very exciting. Uh, Paul is the theologian of the Christian church. Nobody's like Paul. He explained all the great doctrines of the church. He is the recognized theologian of the Christian church for all of history. And but he's not your typical theologian. Paul is like Indiana Jones. He goes from one, you know, problem to another problem and people chasing him and him dodging all kinds of things in life and death situations. He's actually a very, very exciting person, but he's also a brainiac. He's a theologian. And so today we're going to look at the first three years of Paul's Christian life. Here's how it starts in the book of Acts. Of course, he has just become a Christian uh, converted on the road to Damascus, right? So Acts 9.20. And immediately, Paul preached Christ in the synagogues. He's just become a Christian. He preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he who destroyed those who called on this name of Jesus in Jerusalem and came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded, that means bewildered, the Jews who lived at Damascus, proving that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. So here's that Indiana Jones stuff. But their plot became known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and lowered him down by the wall of the city in a basket on ropes. And when Saul came to Jerusalem, so he's away from Damascus, time to go south to Jerusalem. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join himself to the disciples there, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was now a disciple. But Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles, namely Peter and James, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the road to Damascus, and that he had spoken to him, that Jesus had spoken to Paul, and how Paul had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, that as Paul was with the believers in Jerusalem, coming in and going out at Jerusalem for 15 days, according to Galatians 1.18. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he disputed against the Greek culture Jews, that is, Jewish people who spoke Greek around the supper table and had uh, adopted a lot of Greek customs of how they're going to dress and how they're going to act. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Greek culture Jews, but they went about to kill him. Like, oh, that just happened in Damascus and now it's happening again. They went about to kill him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. And so he has... Two near assassination attempts. Well, they were attempts. Two near assassinations. Uh, one in Damascus, one in Jerusalem, in the span of probably about one month. Unbelievable. All right. So we're going to talk about the first three years of Paul's Christian life. And this is a truly dramatic and incredible tale that we're telling. Uh, he's a theologian, but uh, he's like the Indiana Jones of theologians. We're going to talk about... The light that he saw, you know, on the road to Damascus and the voice of Christ that he heard and his utter surrender, immediate surrender to Christ on the road. And then his eyesight was taken away and then his eyesight was restored. And then the ongoing suspicion and anger of all the people he's talking to. And then he has these 
ongoing, groundbreaking, earth-shaking revelations from God, information coming to him, and then the back-to-back assassination attempts, first Damascus, then Jerusalem, and then the return trip home to his home area of Tarsus, where he sets up his base of operations for seven or eight years. But the first three years, not in Tarsus, but in Damascus. All right, it's a truly dramatic and remarkable tale. And then we're going to talk about telling the truth and learning more truth. This is what he was doing for three years in Damascus. He was telling the truth and he's learning more truth and he's learning it fast. So all of that three years in and around Damascus. Again, for looking backwards, you know, about Paul's life, there's the light on the road, the voice on the road, surrender on the road, eyesight taken, eyesight restored, suspicion and anger everywhere he goes, uh, suspicion from the believers like, is he faking us out and he's not really a Christian? And anger from the Jewish people said, hey, he defected, he's, he's a traitor and we ought to kill him. And so that's his life. Now, looking forward, the ongoing uh earth-shaking, groundbreaking revelations directly from Christ. So that's where we're going today. All right. So we're going to start with this dramatic, incredible tale and remind you that it includes uh, three years in and around Damascus and uh, the Lord is teaching him. So just remember, these three years in and around Damascus are very, very important. By the way, just so you know, Damascus is a city which is in the territory of Arabia at this time. So if we say Damascus in Arabia, it would be like saying Virginia Beach in Virginia. So that's what we're talking about. All right, in Galatians 1.11, Paul is describing this first three years. He said, but I make known to you, like assuredly known, like be crystal clear about this. I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. I didn't hear this from people. For I neither received it from man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, what I am telling you, I didn't learn from the apostles because I wasn't even up in Jerusalem with the apostles. I was in Damascus and there were no apostles around me. I didn't learn these things from the apostles. I wasn't with them for the first three years. In Ephesians 3, 2. He describes more. Well, how did you learn this? He said, well, I learned him from the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, well, give us more information about that. So in Ephesians 3, he tells the people there, if you have heard of the dispensation, we would say a stewardship trust. I've been entrusted with a message. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known unto me. So the Lord is teaching him. I didn't hear this from people. I heard this from Jesus. By revelation he made known unto me my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known as it is now revealed. Like people didn't know this before I was in Damascus and the Lord was telling me. I'm, I'm hearing this. This is new information which people did not know. In verse 8, unto me, like I don't even deserve this, unto me, who am, least than the, who am less than the least of all saints, I don't even deserve this, is this grace given. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hidden God. So it wasn't talked about until Paul became a Christian. This is why he's going to become the theologian of the Christian church. He said it had to be revealed to me. Nobody else was teaching me this. Jesus was teaching me this. Well, the back-to-back assassination attempts. So again, he's three years in Damascus. After he's been there for three years, in and out, going to Arabia, broader broader, uh, region of Arabia, back to Damascus' home base, um, 
After three years, the Jewish people in Damascus have had it, and they want to kill it. So we're talking about the years 32 to 35 A.D., give or take, approximately. So according to Acts 9.23, he was there many days. According to Galatians 1.18, by many days we mean three years. He's preaching, he's learning in the Damascus, Arabia area. And angry Jewish people have convinced the governor under Eretus, the king of Arabia, to help capture, arrest, and execute Paul. So that's where we read this morning, Acts 9.23. And after many days, three years, after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. They've had it. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. So soldiers, you know, police officers, if you will, watching the gates. And when he comes, we're going to capture him and we're going to kill him. Then, verse 25, the disciples in Damascus took him by night and lowered him down by the city wall. He didn't go out the city gates. He went over the side, city wall. I mean, this is crazy, right? He's in a basket. It sounds just like Indiana Jones. He's in a basket being lowered down. And a lot of times these city walls, you know, you really don't want to fall from this height. This is going to be probably 20 feet tall. And uh, these Christians have ropes in a basket. You know, get in the basket. And they're lowering him down. It's just crazy. And so that's first at Damascus. They try to kill him. All right. Uh, When this is described, the same thing in 2 Corinthians. Here's how Paul said it felt like to him. He said, in Damascus, the governor under Eretus, the king of the Arabian province, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, you know, a police force and soldier force, desirous to apprehend me. And through a window, in a basket, was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So that's how he ends the first three years in and out of Damascus in the greater Arabia territory. He says in Galatians 1.18, then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and I stayed with him 15 days. So three years in Damascus, in Arabia, and then the Jews have had it with him in Damascus and they want to kill him, so he goes to Jerusalem. All right, trouble in Jerusalem, which we read a few minutes ago. When Saul came to Jerusalem, so he escapes Damascus and they're trying to kill him, he goes to Jerusalem. It would be a leisurely one-week trip, no big deal. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join himself to the disciples, Christian people, But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Like, oh, great. In Damascus, all the Jewish people have had it with me for being such a Christian. And I go to Jerusalem and the Christians there say, you're not a Christian. Like, ah, you can't win. So they're afraid of him and they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. In Galatians 1, 18 and 19, the apostles are named. It's Peter and James. So Barnabas takes him to Peter and James. And he declares to them how Paul had seen the Lord in the road, on the road to Damascus, and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus in and out for three years. Everybody there believes he's a Christian. And he was with them, the believers in Jerusalem, coming in and out. And as Galatians 1.18 says, he did this for 15 days. So about a week in traveling from his last episode in the basket on the wall. 
maybe a week of traveling, and then 15 days in Jerusalem. Verse 29, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus for those 15 days. And he disputed with the Greek culture Jews. They're arguing with him. But then they went about to kill him in Jerusalem. Like we just got out of Damascus and now the people in Jerusalem want to kill me. Verse 30, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea. It's really north, but we say down because Jerusalem is high. So you always go down the hill. Wherever you go, you go down the hill. So they're going to go north, but down to Caesarea, which is a seaport. And then they're going to send him to Tarsus, which is his home area. We call him Saul of Tarsus, right? It's his home area. All right. So he is going to establish Tarsus as his home base of operations. Verse 29 again. They spoke boldly in Jerusalem for 15 days in the name of the Lord Jesus. Disputed. They sent him forth to Tarsus. This is the return trip home. In Galatians, Paul describes this. And when he's done in Jerusalem, he says, Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Once again, Tarsus is in the combined province of Syria dash Cilicia. As Virginia Beach is in the state of Virginia, Tarsus is in the province of Syria Cilicia. Okay? Afterwards, after I was done in Jerusalem, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, especially Tarsus, his home area. And I was unknown by face under the churches of Judea, which he had just visited and they tried to kill him. They didn't know who I was at first, but they had heard only that he who persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed and they glorified God in me. So he went from Jerusalem to Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia, and he sets up his operations. For the next seven years, the Apostle Paul is going to live in Tarsus and they have these forays all around Syria, Cilicia, and he's going to do amazing things. Crisscrossing back and forth in the greater province of Syria and Cilicia, we find that in his ministry, he has troubles all along the way. This is, again, just like Indiana Jones. He says of the Jews that lived in that area, Tarsus, Syria, Cilicia, of the Jews, five times I received uh, 40 strokes, 40 stripes, that is, lashes with a whip, minus one, so 39. So he was beaten with a whip five times. He says three times I was beaten with wooden rods, and three times I had a shipwreck, and one of those times, I was all night and the following day floating in the water, waiting to be rescued or swimming to land. And there were many other things. And we learn about this from Second Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27. So in other words, after the initial three years, which we're talking about today, he had seven years in his home area. And in that seven years, all these terrible things happened. He really isn't like your typical theologian then, is he? I mean, who is like Paul? Well, so that's a truly dramatic and incredible tale. His life reads like Indiana Jones. Now we want to talk about the truth that he was telling and that he was learning in that first three years because it is groundbreaking and that three years in and around Damascus is so important to everything today that you and I believe. All right, so... He's just become a Christian. Remember Acts 9.20 says, and immediately he preached. He began ministering. Immediately he becomes a teacher from day one. Immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. All that heard him were were amazed and said, wasn't this the one who was trying to kill us? In verse 22, and you see the yellow font there. Saul increased the more in strength. Over that three years, 
He just became more and more knowledgeable and more and more powerful. Saul increased more in strength and he bewildered the Jews who lived at Damascus. So again, three years in and around Damascus, right? He, he bewildered the Jews that lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Christ. And after many days, that is three days, they'd had enough of it and they were going to go about to kill him. So he is in Damascus serving. He's also learning. And that's emphasized in Galatians 1.15 again. Paul says, When it pleased God to reveal his son in me, to make me a Christian, I saw his son on the road to Damascus. So when it pleased God to reveal his son in me, immediately I did not go up to Jerusalem. I, I waited three years. I stayed in and around Damascus for three years. Immediately I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me to learn from them. But I went into Arabia, uh, the greater area of Damascus. I mean, like I went to Virginia, not just Virginia Beach. I went to Virginia. I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So out in probably a quiet place and then back in the city. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. And what is he learning? He says, I assure you that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man because I didn't learn it from the apostles. I learned it directly from the Lord Jesus in that three years in Damascus. I was taught it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first matter of critical importance that he learned in those three years in Damascus, and this is so important, he learned that the Mosaic law is no longer appropriate for regulating the Christian lifestyle. It's no longer appropriate for telling us how we have to live. How we might live, yes. How we have to live, no. It's no longer appropriate for that. It's not appropriate as a proof of genuine conversion. And it's not appropriate to use it as a condition for real Christianity, for pure Christianity, for being spirit-filled. Like if you really want to do the Christian life right, you have to do it according to the Old Testament law. Now this is going to be a huge monumental recalibration for the Apostle Paul because up until now, up until that three years, he says, as concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. There's a pretty good chance that the Apostle Paul had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. And he intended to obey it implicitly. So now, after he has memorized this huge section of Scripture, and tried all of his life to obey implicitly, the Lord, not the apostles, the Lord Jesus himself, says, here's what you have to know, Paul. The Old Testament law is no longer a benchmark, a gold standard for the Christian life. Not for becoming a Christian in the first place, and not for really doing the Christian life right. That would be groundbreaking, earth-shaking for Paul to hear. Here's what Paul taught us because Jesus taught him. Now the righteousness of God without the law. Righteousness without the law is manifest. The end of the law. Christ has abolished in his flesh the law. We are free from the law. We are delivered from the law. We are no longer under the schoolmaster. We are dead to the law. Uh, the Lord has been blotting out the handwriting of the law. The Lord has made the law abolished. It is done away. Groundbreaking 
earth-shaking that's really big. So Paul became the premier theologian of the church. He's also what we might call the premier theologian of grace in all of church history. And he becomes the champion of this. Like, no, it's not about the law. The law was your old school teacher. Your school teacher was a wonderful school teacher. She wouldn't let you chew gum. But now you can if you want to. She was great, but we're not doing that anymore. And she wanted you to do your homework. Well, you don't have homework anymore. The the teacher was great, but the teacher is not what you need now to know how to follow Jesus. We are no longer under a schoolmaster. So he became the champion of this, and he had to argue with people because everybody got it wrong, just the same as he did before the Lord taught him. So he has to argue with people, and he teaches them that the Old Testament law is no longer a condition for salvation and is no longer a condition for Christian purity. That's not how you do it. So in Acts 15.1, we'll talk about this in some future time. This is the Council of Jerusalem. And see that there were people around Paul who were believers. They, they believed in Jesus, but they thought you can't be saved. You can't be saved unless you keep the law. So that's what it says here. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised after the manner of Moses, you can't be saved. You see, we put that in bold font. You can't be saved. You have to keep the law or you can't be saved. And Paul is going to argue about this because the Lord said, that's not how we're doing it anymore. And it was a huge monumental recalibration for him to get it. And so now he has to teach everybody else. So in verse 2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small strife, you know, I'm going to fight you on this one, had no small strife and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others with them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And they're going to get this settled. Now here's what you have to know. That's taking place in 49 AD. People are still wondering, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Do you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? They're still wondering that in 49 AD. I think I said BC before. AD. And Paul was with Jesus learning these things in 32 to 35. So we are more, much more than a decade later, and this is still being discussed. In Acts 15.5, you notice these people aren't necessarily saying that you have to keep the Old Testament law to be saved, but they're saying you have to keep the Old Testament law to be pure if you're really going to do the Christian life right. And so, once again, back in the Jerusalem Council, 49 A.D., Acts 15, there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees who believed. Isn't that great? Pharisees had come to believe the gospel. So a certain sect of the Pharisees who believed, they said, it is needful to circumcise the Gentiles and to command them to keep the law of Moses. All right, maybe not to become Christians, but to do the Christian life right, they have to be circumcised and they have to keep the law. If you're going to be a pure Christian, a devoted Christian, if you're going to be a characteristically spirit-filled Christian, you have to keep the law. Tell them that, Paul. And Paul was not about to tell them that. In Galatians 2.11, Paul talks about the Jerusalem Council and what it was like when they're having this big dispute, things that he learned from 32 to 35 A.D. that are still being disputed in 49 A.D. He says, when Peter... Uh, actually, we have to get past that a little bit. This is not the Jerusalem Council. This is 
after the Jerusalem Council, everything is settled. Yeah, Paul is right, and the other guys are wrong. You don't have to keep the law to be saved, and you don't have to keep the law to be a pure Christian. All right. So after that, right, we're still perhaps 49 AD, but maybe 50. Not much different. Galatians 2.11. When Peter had come to Antioch, after we had this big fight in Jerusalem, settling all this, when Peter had come to Antioch, where lots of Gentiles were, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. I had to confront Peter because he was wrong. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, Peter did eat with the Gentiles. So people came from James in Jerusalem. He's the main apostle in Jerusalem. And people came to Antioch to check things out. And Peter's already there. And until those fellows came from Jerusalem, Peter ate with the Gentiles. But when they had come, Peter withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Like, oh, the watchdogs from Jerusalem are going to be here, so I'm not going to hang out with the Gentiles anymore. Verse 13, and Barnabas also was carried away with their hypocrisy. Peter and Barnabas, oh no. So in verse 14, but when I saw that they did not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews do? What are you doing? So this is Paul giving Peter a good dressing down in public. So you say, you know, uh, who is the most important theologian of the Christian church? Was it Peter? The answer is no. Paul had to set him straight. And again, this is 14 years after Paul had learned all these things from the Lord in Damascus, Arabia. Well, you know why this is important to you? Do you know who else fights against Paul today? Well, who would fight against Paul today? Oh, you just don't know. Do you know who else fights against Paul today? The person who says, to my credit, I do the Old Testament law. Or the person who says, if you really want to live the Christian life right, you also have to, and now we fill in the blanks, keep Saturday or Sunday as a Sabbath day. Do you know anybody who believes that? Their entire Christian denomination is built on that idea. Those people are fighting against Paul because the Sabbath observance comes from the old testament law and paul learned you do not have to keep the law either to be a christian or to be a pure christian and some people say well you have to eat kosher you have to avoid pork and shellfish and to my credit i do not eat pork and shellfish they might say like oh that's bad i mean you you can do that if you want to but you can't say to my credit i do that or if you really want to be pure you have to do that or Uh, You have to wear untrimmed beards, men. Uh, Prayer fringes called talit. You see little fringes, a belt with fringes hanging down under their uh, shirt. Uh, Or never get tattoos. To my credit, I would never have a tattoo because the Old Testament laws say you can't do that. Or if you're going to, you'd be a Christian to have tattoos, but if you're really going to do the Christian life right, you can't have a tattoo. See, you're fighting against Paul. Or you have to observe the Jewish holidays. You do not observe Passover. Well, I understand most Christians don't, but to my credit, I do observe Passover. You have to devote 10% of your money to God. Well, it's a little sensitive. I hope you won't quit giving money in the offering plate. But uh, Dr. Ryrie used to tell his students, I hope that you'll either give 9% or 11% just so you don't become legalistic about it. And um, 
Hopefully you won't. Or you have to circumcise. <gasps> you don't circumcise your baby boys. Well, to my credit, I do. Or if you really want to do the Christian life right, you would too. Or have priests for your pastors and symbolic sacrifices for forgiveness. Like if you're really going to do the Christian life right, you have to call your pastor a priest. You're not just a pastor, he's a priest. Where'd you get that? Oh, you know, it's in the Old Testament. Yeah, well, we're not doing that anymore. And you have to have sacrifices for forgiveness. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, Mass is a bloodless sacrifice. We have to sacrifice Jesus every time you come to worship. And if you keep sacrificing Jesus every time you come to worship, this bloodless sacrifice will forgive your sins. So have you been to the sacrifice lately? Who told you you should do that? Oh, we learned that from the Old Testament law. Stop. Or you have to have church-appointed officers govern the world. See, what we have to do is get Christians in the White House and Christians in the state government and Christians in the city government and Christians in the United Nations and we'll get only Christians and then the Christians will rule the world and then what will we do? Oh, then we'll execute all the fornicators and execute the heretics and we'll also execute rebellious children. Like, where did you get that? Oh, it's in the Old Testament law. Stop. We're not doing that anymore. And when people want that to be their world, then they are confused about the role of the law in the Christian life. Remember, the righteousness of God without the law, dead to the law, free from the law, delivered from the law. The law is abolished, done away. That's what Paul learned in 32 to 35 in Damascus and the greater area of Arabia. And that's what was so hard. These were the big fights in the Christian church all through until the Jerusalem Council. And then even after that, Peter and Barnabas fall apart. Unbelievable. Think, well, same thing happens today, right? All right, but there's still more truth to learn, and it's groundbreaking, mind-boggling truth. For three years, in and around Damascus, Paul preaches for a while, and then he goes out and gets in a solitary place, and he's learning more things. So again, these are the mystery doctrines which have never been talked about before the execution of Stephen and the conversion of Paul. New information. So again, notice in the highlighted font uh, from Ephesians chapter 3. If you have heard of the dispensation, the stewardship trust that has been given to me for you, the Lord has entrusted me with a message. It was given to me, in verse 3, by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, you see, in In green font there, mystery, three lines down, mystery. And second line from the bottom, mystery. You say, well, what's a mystery? Well, in the purplish pink font, the mystery is this, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. It wasn't known before. Daniel didn't know it. Moses didn't know it. Isaiah didn't know it. Paul says it wasn't made known before. It's not mystery like we can never understand it. It's mystery like it wasn't made known before. This is new information. And once again in the pinkish-purplish font at the bottom, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden God. It was hidden, and God meant it to be hidden. And so Paul says, that's what I'm learning. You say, well, all right, so what are these mysteries that you're learning? And there's a three-part mystery and it has to do with this, and we've talked about it before, the, the new intermission agenda of God. That's a very special thing, and it wasn't talked about before. 
end. It will come to an end one day in what we call the end times. But it has three parts. The first part is judicial blindness must settle on the Jewish race for an extended period of time. And there will be no more preferential treatment for them until the end times as a nation, as a race, as an ethnic group. And here we want to say, oh, you know, we're sorry. That's bad. But it was necessary. How do we know that this is what Paul learned? Because in Romans 11, verse 25, he says, I do not wish, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. What's a mystery? Oh, you know, those things which were not made known unto the sons of man, as they are now revealed. Those things which were hid in Christ Jesus until now. Those things. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery that I learned in that three years of Damascus, Arabia experience with Christ when he was teaching me. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the full harvest of the Gentiles has come in. Israel is going to be blinded and they don't get preferential treatment anymore until the end time. Oh, too bad. The second part of this three-part mystery, uh, the new intermission agenda, a new thing that the Lord is starting, is an unparalleled harvest of Gentile believers. And here we're supposed to say, yay. You know, like the first one, ah, oh, this one's yay. An unparalleled harvest of Gentile believers completely equal to Jewish believers in every way must come into the church during this intermission agenda. An unparalleled harvest of Gentile people. And Gentile people, in case you don't remember, are all ethnic people who aren't Jewish. All non-Jewish people. And um, this harvest of Gentiles is so wonderful. So in Romans eleven twenty five, remember it says, this mystery, this mystery, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until what? Well, until the full harvest of the Gentiles has come in. And then Ephesians 3, 3, by revelation, Jesus made known to me the mystery. It wasn't known before, but now it's known. It's the intermission doctrine, which in other ages was not made known, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Time is short, but let me just remind you. According to the Old Testament law, you know, there was built in Jewish preferential treatment. It was baked in to the Mosaic law. Example, under the law of Moses, uh, you could buy a slave from a Gentile ethnic group, but you couldn't buy a slave from a Jewish person. Um, Jewish people could not be purchased slaves. Example. You could charge interest in the money you loaned to a Gentile person, but you can't charge interest to a Jewish person. See, it's preferential treatment. Example. Um, If an animal dies by itself and its meat might be tainted, you could sell the meat to a Gentile person, but you can't sell it to a Jewish person because Jewish people are holy. That's the reason. Um, Example. When a high priest has to have a wife, He must marry a Jewish person. He could never marry a Gentile person. When you have a king, you must have a Jewish king and not a Gentile king. You see, preferential treatment was baked into the law of Moses. And that's why it was so important when Jesus died on the cross and he abolished abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now there's no longer institutionalized Jewish favoritism. This text says... By revelation, Jesus made known to me the mystery, which in other ages was not known. Nobody had any idea this was coming. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. 
and of the household of God. You are the family of God just as much as the Jewish people were. Amazing. And all of that because of Calvary. The third part of this mystery doctrine was, there will be a sudden catching away of all believers at the end of this intermission agenda. And then, an unparalleled Jewish revival and a return to preferential treatment for Jewish people uh, that was always promised. So in other words, once Jesus died on the cross, there is no law that you have to give preferential treatment to Jewish people. And that's what's happening right now. We're not giving preferential treatment to Jewish people because in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. No preferential treatment. There's no law that says it's baked in. You have to do that. But in the end times, it's not a law. It was a promise. When we come to a certain point, God is going to give preferential treatment again to Jewish people. And that's okay. It's not because we are obligated to do it today. It's not a law. It's something that the Lord has foretold. And so this sudden catching away, this is very exciting, right? So 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What's a mystery? Oh, they didn't talk about this before. It's new information for the new agenda of God. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, there's going to be this resurrection suddenly. Very exciting. Romans 11:25 again says this mystery. That blindness in part has happened to Israel, like, ah, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, yay, and then another yay. And so all Israel shall be saved. After the rapture, after the catching away, then the Jewish people get preferential treatment again. Yay, everybody wins. So you know why you should celebrate this morning. Because since Stephen's execution and Paul's conversion, God has been tenaciously drawing this great Gentile harvest and and, uh, uh, amazing, lovingly drawing, tenaciously drawing of Gentile converts, including you. And the most generous tally of Christians that could ever be imagined is that about one-third of the world's population right now is Christian. That's what, for example, the Pew Forum people uh, say is the percentage of Christians in the world. Now, that is extremely generous, but let's say, all right, we'll buy that. If that's true, then uh, you could line all the 8 billion people of the world up into lines of three people, three, 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 line them all up. And then you say, okay, middle person, Look to your left, look to your right. One-third of the world's population is Christian. Middle person, look to the left, look to the right. Now, the person on the left of you and the person on the right of you is going to drop into hell pretty soon. You get to go to heaven. Step forward. Wow. But see, that's the very, very most generous tally that could be imagined. That would include people who are criminals and claim to be Christians and child molesters who claim to be Christians and, and charlatans who claim to be... I mean, that's every imaginable person who would write on a piece of paper, I'm a Christian. What's the reality? Well, we suspect that there are about 386 million evangelicals in the world. An evangelical is somebody who believes in the authority of the Bible and the born-again experience. So if that was correct, and even that might be extraordinarily generous, then it would be like... Line up the whole population of the world in groups of 20. Okay, you, at the end of the line, 
you go to heaven, and the 19 to the left, you drop into hell. What an amazing thing that we have this great Gentile harvest, and you get to be a part of it. I mean, it's a wonderful Gentile harvest if we are one out of every 20 in the world, or if we were one out of every three in the world. That'd be a, an amazing Gentile harvest, but you have to bear in mind that there is still, still so much more harvesting to do. And that's what we get to do. We get to help the Lord with this. So Suzanne is a Christian. She's looking out her window one day, and Jane is walking by, and, uh, you know, you're worried what people are going to think. Jane's just walking by and looking, I don't know, a little thoughtful. So Suzanne taps on the window, and Jane looks, and, you know, Suzanne motions her to come in. And then as soon as she did that, as soon as Suzanne did that, she felt kind of goofy about it, like, you know, keep it classy, Suzanne. You know, you're knocking on the window and motioning for people. Maybe she doesn't want to come in. Maybe she's too busy. You know, maybe you're just being a pest. But here's what was happening at that moment. Jane has an adult daughter who's been in a car accident. After the car accident, she was in a coma for a really long time. She came out of the coma, and she's doing much better, but she still is confused because of the brain injury, and she thinks that she's a little girl, and her own daughter, her own little daughter, she thinks her own daughter is her playmate from childhood days, and it's just breaking Susan's heart. And so she's out walking, praying, God, how can I go on? It is too much, and I feel as if you have left me to handle this all by myself. If you love me, and if you are there for me, send someone to help me, someone that I can talk to. Please, Lord, I need someone now. And that's when the tap on the window happened. You know, keep it classy, Suzanne. You see, we get to participate in this extraordinary, nothing like it, unearthly Gentile harvest. You can help with that. It's what God is doing. It's, it's God's agenda, and you can join him in his agenda. Janie Matson came home from church and she lived in an apartment complex and her neighbor was there and she told Felipe, I'm so happy today. He says, why? And she says, I just came home from church and the traffic was backed up to get in the parking lot. I had to park way in the back. So many people were there. And Felipe says, well, why are so many people going to church? And Janie says, well, Felipe, people need God. And so they just start talking there in the hallway of their apartment. And Felipe became a Christian. And he said, well, you have to come and, and talk to my wife and my son and my niece and my nephew. And they all became Christians that day. And in a short time, Jamie invited 20 other people of his family to come to his church and to become Christians. And they all became Christians because she opened her mouth. said, the Lord is doing this huge Gentile harvest and, and I can participate and I'm going to open my mouth. I just, I just try, you know, say something. And you think, you know, everybody's just going to think I'm weird. Like, so what? There's this, this unearthly Gentile harvest. And of course, Jewish people too. But it's especially effective with Gentiles right now. Charlie invited his neighbor to church. You know, which is always, I'm going to stick my neck out there. You know, here we go. Charlie, would you like to come to church? Charlie says, I'm sorry, but I believe that anyone interested in religion is not a thinking person and is lacking in common sense. No one in our culture would believe such a myth as Jesus Christ. Oh, <laughs> bummer. So that didn't work. But Charlie decided one day to clean his neighbor's gutters because the neighbor hates ladders. So he went and cleaned his gutters. He had no idea. But next Sunday, the neighbor came to church. And that man became a Christian. 
And he told Charlie why. He said, oh, it was your, your kindness to me that made me interested in the gospel. See, there's this Gentile harvest going on and we can participate. We, we, can, we can just join with the Lord in doing what he's doing in this wonderful agenda. You know why else you should celebrate? Because these Gentiles are being adopted, this is including you, are being adopted into Christ's collective bride, treating you right now, every day, and for all eternity, as the most privileged band of human beings that history has ever known. And this includes being even more privileged than the Old Testament Jewish converts and the Jewish converts of the end times. You in this agenda, this intermission agenda period, are the most blessed and privileged people in the whole wide world, and you always will be. Here's how the Bible speaks about you. During this fullness of the harvest of the Gentiles, you are the body of Christ. Do you realize what that means? You are conjoined by the Holy Spirit with Christ himself. You are the body of Christ. By one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we are Jews or Gentiles, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He nourishes and cherishes it. You are the most privileged and blessed band of people that have ever lived on planet Earth. And do you know why else you should celebrate? Because since Stephen's execution and Paul's conversion, there is this new agenda of God, which includes being caught up in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, brought to the Lord's paradise forever. Not only you, but all the people you love who are Christians. What a great thing. Do you just believe that? We used to tell our sons at bedtime, they're a little scared, a little creeped out about darkness. Well, maybe today. You never know. Maybe today while we're sleeping, we'll hear the sound of a trumpet like, what's that? And suddenly, wow, we're all going to go up to the king's land. And he has the best stuff ever. We're all going to go together. We're going to live there. There won't be any more troubles. It makes a kid feel pretty good about sleeping. It's a wonderful thing. So that's what Paul learned. And here's our conclusion. We aren't expected to follow the Old Testament law meticulously. That was our old school teacher, and we're really not in school anymore. We're not following it to be saved, and we're not following it to be right, pure, characteristically spirit-filled. God's new intermission agenda involves him tenaciously drawing Gentiles like you and me into his paradise. We're the most privileged people in the world. And at the end of our life story, we have a truly rapturous ending. Us and all the people who love Jesus all together. What a wonderful ending. And now, We all have the capacity. We have the obligation. We have the privilege to do as much as we can do, whatever we can do, to just join the Lord in harvesting these Gentiles wherever we find them, and the Jewish people too. But it's especially effective with the Gentile. Harvest as many as you can. Talk to everybody. Tell your neighbors. Tell the guy next to you in the store. Just tell anybody to become a Christian because it's the best thing in the world.